0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesti, and alongside me, as always, is...
2: Paul Gillieri.
0: Paul, it continues to be hot here in Southern California, but we've got an even hotter guest. Can I say that? You can. <laughs> we are uh, in the midst of a Pearl Jam tour. It is... The best time of the year. This is the Christmas time of year, even though it's September. And uh, we're right in the smack dab in the middle of this nine show run, a little mini run. And there's a gentleman who has been involved in these tours for 32 years. We'll I ask say, him right I, that's now. That's a
2: prolific <laughs> level of involvement, <laughs> I would argue.
0: It is. It is. It's a, it's a lot of involvement. Um, we've talked to Jimmy Show. We talked to Lance Mercer. And now we talk to a gentleman who has probably heard every single live performance or damn near every single one multiple times over the last 32 years, engineer, mixer, Brett Elison. Hello, sir. Hi there. How, how goes it, guys? It goes well.
2: Going very well. We're thrilled to have you on.
0: Well, thank you. So I'm going to kind of just dive right into it. Um, I think many people, well, actually, you know, like, how about you give the listeners uh, a brief CV for anybody who's like, who is this Brett guy?
1: Uh, Brett Eliason. I started with Pearl Jam July 4th, 1991, wow. before the first record even came out. Uh, mixed a show at the Rock Candy
3: Forum. Um, I was their front of house engineer through 2003 or
1: four, something like that. Um, and when they took a break, I went off and started mixing uh, REM for a while before they uh, retired and I started uh, in recording studios in the mid eighties, met Jeff and stone during their green river days. And also Mm -hmm. I was around during the mother love bone stuff, like a second engineer. Um, You know, that kind of just fast forwarded into me, bumping into their manager one day and getting asked if I knew of anybody that wanted to go on tour. (laughs) I said, sure, I'll go. Yeah. (laughs) So were you you itching
0: to go on tour at the time? I mean, you were just as young as they were.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I'd never really I'd done a little bit of club sound around Seattle, but it wasn't really my thing. Um, but I'd gone freelance from the recording studio, meaning I was, you know, struggling for money, of course. And uh when Kelly said that, asked me about it, I said, Well, where are you guys going? He's like, Oh, we're going to Boston and New York for the new music seminar, and then we're making our way back, back uh, across the upper Midwest. I hadn't been further east than maybe Montana in my life at that point. So,
2: you know. You know it's fascinating Brett, just your involvement with Jeff and Stone in three iterations of their band with Green River, Mother Love Bone and of course subsequently Pearl Jam. I'm curious what 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 stands out the most to you about just those two guys specifically when you think about the wide spectrum of music that they've made but specifically as it relates to seeing them within the context of three very different bands.
1: Well they played, you know, of course, major roles, but they weren't the writers in those first two. Um, it, it, you know, they—I think—they were working at writing throughout that. Um, but just watching them grow into the amazing, talented, confident, you know, deeply mindful musicians and individuals that they are now over all that time. Plus, they support each other and, and uh, really augment each other so well.
0: Now, Brett, you have said. That live engineering is like mixing and mastering at the same time, but without any second takes, right? Yes. So, from both a front of house point of view and a post show remix for bootlegs point of view, can you take us through all the variables that you look for when you enter a venue, um, and what you would prioritize um, your sound for? And and, and you know, venues that you've been in a number of times, like maybe like the Forum, Madison Square Garden, or places that you're brand new to?
1: It's always nice to have some experience in a room, for sure. Uh, If you've dealt with it before. I mean, there's things that change. A number of people in the room, uh, how warm or cold it is, um, that all drastically Mm. affects uh, just the way sound and physics work in the room. Um, You know, you know the band, and your biggest thing is to get that, that artist and their sound across in each venue the best you can. Um, Most venues, especially sports arenas and stuff, it's a bit of a give and take, right? I mean, you're looking for clarity. Sometimes you've got to carve out the low end so that it's not rolling in the room, but then you lose some of that low visceral effect. Um, There's just an awful lot of that going on. Uh, You know, very, very few times during an entire year-long tour, do you feel like, oh, my God, it all came together tonight for me, for the band, the audience was really into it, especially after you've experienced it quite a few times. But there's those super magical nights that just don't happen for you that often Once you when you're doing it every single day. Um, but you try to represent them the best you can. And, and like I say, it's... Um, So much of it is finding that sweet spot for volume where you're not overdriving the room, but you're still filling it up, right? You want to cover the venue as best you can. So even, you know, one of the things I always looked for when I started to learn more about it was once you get up and going, look up into the the way upper range seats. And if you see people cheering and dancing and stuff, you know, you've got sound up there. Mm. You know, they're clear and they're enjoying it, right? They're all sitting with their arms crossed. You're not doing your job very well.
2: Um, That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean you can tell a lot by just how people are reacting to it, right? And yeah, no, if you're for really sure. Connecting to it, then you know that what's hitting them, they're enjoying. It,
2: so, I mean, there's a moment in every Pearl Jam show where you get that that moment in a live, you know, and everyone's doing the hands, you know, hey, hey, and I, I that is the moment where Jason and I invariably always turn around because whenever we're fortunate enough oh, to be God. somewhere on the floor, I mean, it's it's funny how often I find myself turning around because the view of that many fans just in celebratory unison just embracing and connecting through the music is just as powerful as what the band's pumping out from the stage in front of us. And so when you see that way up in the rafters, I I totally get it. You know what I mean?
0: Does it feel like a big win when you see people in the the corners Uh, actually responding the same
1: way? So the first time, not the first, well, we've been playing clubs, right? And then we go over to Europe the first time and we were playing the, uh, we did a couple of German ones that are now huge, Rock'em Ring and Rock'em Park. Back then, they were like ten thousand people. Um, made our way down to uh, Netherlands. We we're playing the Pinkpop Festival, and there was you know fifty thousand plus people there, maybe even more. Nineteen ninety two, I think, mm-hmm. early uh, springtime, and uh, I'd never mix in front of that many people. Um, David Byrne was on right before us mm. solo. Uh, his engineer is amazing. I had two analog consoles for all the inputs because there was so much stuff he horns and background singers and drums and bass. And just the guy was just working the whole time. And I've had like maybe 20 inputs. And I was scared <laughs> to death <laughs> looking around at this crowd. And i begged, well, not begged, but I'd asked the band to start with something very vocal centric so I could get Ed's voice tuned up. We weren't even carrying our own production at that point. So you're using whatever the, you know provided. Pa and console and everything was so you're kind of trying to rough it in during the band before you um, without even hearing it. It's no, there's no sound check. It's they they come on they go. i could be disastrous if you're not somewhere close. So they uh, Ed actually came out with acoustic guitar for the first time and did Redemption song,
0: and oh. it was beautiful. I didn't know it was coming. It was just
1: beautiful. When, when did he
0: do that? On. What's that? When when did he do that? Because the first song they put as a band was Even Flow. At that show,
1: yeah, no, he was on right before Evenflow. Oh, cool. Yeah, he he opened that with that uh, acoustic bit. Now maybe that never made. I didn't. You made that the idea. boot or yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. So uh, it allowed me to dial him in, get him real strong. They opened, then they the band came out. They went into Evenflow, and I just had my head down and was working away, getting this together as fast as I could. And by the first chorus, I was like, you know, this is sounding pretty good. And I looked up around me and, you know, the whole crowd was bouncing up and down. (laughs) That was the first time I've had that kind of an electricity run through my
0: body, you know, hair standing, (laughs) hair arms a little bit. It was just amazing. You're the gatekeeper, Brett. (laughs) Without you dialing the faders, they they aren't hearing shit.
1: There's that, that, but I mean, you know. (laughs) when you've got a band with that much energy and that much talent and that much, you know, yeah, it, it helps. I've got a job to do, but it's (laughs) made easier by that Mm -hmm. material for sure.
2: Is there a venue that you would say is your, your favorite one when you look back at all the performances, one that stands out, like, man, I, I really loved working with them there.
3: Madison square gardens one. um,
1: What's the Montreal Molson Arena? I think that's what it, it was town. called. Molson, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> done this for a while. Um, uh, Great Woods, Boston, I'm sure it's not called that
2: anymore.
0: Is that the Mansfield one?
2: Yeah, oh, okay, that's yeah. great. Great, the, I mean, those the, are wood, the big wood. iconic shows,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I always enjoyed
1: the Washington, DC. What's the name of that one? Um, yeah,
2: Constitution Hall one.
1: No, no, that's a hard room. <laughs> it's cool. Not the. No, um, the uh, are you talking about the, the uh,
0: where, where the Capitals and Wizards play, like the basketball arena?
1: No, no, no. It's the outdoor uh, amphitheater. Um, it's the first one of its kind. Actually, oh.
0: I, I, is it in Maryland? Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember the name of it. I'm talking about. It's interesting. You, you, you called up two basketball arenas that or, ordinarily those don't have the best acoustics, right? Uh, for for
1: whatever reason, I always got along with them really well. I mean, um, I've done a few different bands in MSG and always had a good time in there. That's a good sounding room. Part of the problem, the older rooms, they actually took into account, I think, the idea that it wasn't just going to be a sports venue, mm. right? that there's going to be m- other musical events, other things going on in there. Modern sports arenas are designed so that it's all crowd presence on the floor which also means that it's really really high endy in that speech zone right to get that crowd presence so it's got this that that high-end swirl that engineers have to fight in those places well they're designed to do that to add that excitement to the floor for Mm. the players right uh and, and it's kind of the antithesis of what we as music engineers want to see. So when right? they
0: when they redesigned the the, uh, the forum out here in Los Angeles, because obviously you were there with them in 98. They've played it before when it was still in use by the Lakers and the Kings. And mm-hmm. then they resched the whole thing back in like 2010 or something like that after that run of Prince shows. And I imagine it's probably nicer because they did it for music, right?
1: I don't know. I haven't been in there since. the. Uh, although I love mixing that room. That was a good sounding room mm. uh, the way it was back in the day.
2: It's interesting, Brett. You, you bring up the the experience of Pearl Jam as a band because, specifically, when they play live, um, you know, we, we spoke with Jimmy Schof recently, uh, Dave, uh, Dave A's drum tech, and one of the things that he really emphasized about their second record, Versus, was that the live experience of Pearl Jam was really, really well captured on that record, um, in the studio, and I think that. A lot of people today think that Pearl Jam essentially makes records to play them live. And that that's based around the idea that, that this is the message, the signal that they kept communicating. So there's this, this cult following. And obviously, to this day, the sold-out tours, I think, attest to that. But on the studio records that, that you've worked on specifically, did you ever want to bring that live studio approach into those sessions? Uh, did the band want that? I mean, did, did you see a relationship between those two things? I mean, I, I think with certain albums, uh, there really seemed to be a lot more experimentation with soundscapes. I and mean, it's not like they went full Beatles where they said, you know, revolver post, like, we're just, we're not touring, you know, we just want to toy around with this stuff, you know? Um, and I mean, obviously doing what you do that those records are probably you should geek out on them. But, um, uh, For Pearl Jam specifically, where the live experience is still very much an anchor in the Pearl Jam experience. uh, How does that relationship work for you in your role?
1: I think, I mean, those guys, I don't think they ever worried about how it was going to come across live while they were writing and while they were working on it in the studio. Um, I agree that when they are there together, creating together, you get. A more cohesive uh band centric beautiful record than when it's kind of pieced together and people are sort of bringing parts in when they it's their turn to come in and work and that certainly happens throughout the industry right um you know uh even some of the side I did uh the first Brad record and that was all of those guys just going out alive, even mm. vocals for the most part and you know that feels that way to me it's got a really cool feel uh There is a disconnect when you're just overdubbing and you're focusing on uh, production layers. But the benefits behind that are you get some really interesting uh, sonic filters going, get some really interesting things that wouldn't happen if it was just a band playing live, too. So there's a give and take. Um, You know, Mirrorball, I engineered that. Brendan O'Brien produced it, and uh, that was all live. I mean, 100%. A couple little overdubs here and there. And
0: I still think that's a super cool record. Um, are we getting that uh, remastering time soon you know (laughs) no one said anything (laughs) oddly they don't call me talk
1: to me about these
3: things
1: (laughs) Um, uh, even uh, the Mad Season record when I I worked on that that was uh, pretty much the band just in there swinging together Um, I was going to
0: ask you about that yeah yeah.
1: which uh, you know that comes across as well it's got a really neat live cohesion to it
0: we recently did a um, uh an episode on kind of the side projects and kind of what we thought our, our favorite records were. I mean, there's, there's like 20 different records that the, all these guys have been a part of outside of the main band. And and we both agreed that Mad Seasons was at least it, for me, it sounded like I was sitting beside the kick drum in the snare and I could be in that, in that air, in that, I felt like I was there, you know? So, and, and I think the same thing of the, of the first Brad record as well. Um, but I just wanted to say that because I, I mean, that that's what you are a part of. And it it felt like I was in it. And I was I love that. It's my favorite part of, of rock records when I feel like I'm in the studio with the guys. Um, I had a I question, a couple hurt. questions here from um, from our uh, social media. But I want to ask this question first. And it is well documented that uh, you have recorded and mixed pretty much every show um, from Pearl Jam, barring that three year period. 2007-2010-ish, uh, am I right? Uh, I
1: think it was 2007-2008, I don't think they worked. Okay, yeah. okay.
0: Um, and you said you, in an interview many years ago that you went from uh, cassettes to DAT tapes to DAT tapes to Sony PCM800 consoles and then eventually to Pro Tools, so obviously the technology advanced and advanced and advanced. That is a good thing in a lot of ways. In other ways, it's not. I know that you said you still have a lot of analog um, equipment in your room there, uh, in trail mix, um, where you do your home um, your work at home. And I want to know, is there anything that modern technology does that old tech actually does better for you? I think part of what
1: modern technology does, uh, I mean it gives you a lot of tools, it gives you the ability to really get too easy with things, but that's also not necessarily a great thing, right um, when I work on bootlegs, I try to keep myself as live-oriented as I can. Um, you know, I'm certainly not trying to fix anything, things like that. I mean, that stuff goes out all its warts, and that's the agreement. But, um, but you know, just running something to analog tape, especially like even the old reel-to-reels, you had 24 tracks, or if you two of them, 48. But, you know, you had 24 tracks, so you had to keep everything focused your setup had to be smaller. Everything had to be simpler. Mm. It also made it raw, It made it a little warmer in some ways. Um, you know, it, it keeps the band from going crazy. I mean, I think they're up around 70-some inputs now. And a lot of that yeah. like stuff from one-off songs, right? Things that'll show up like a drum machine for UR or something like that. It's on the list it's on the input list if they play it they're set the crew is set everybody's set to make it happen so there's quite a bit of that but uh, you know there's still a big big production going on there and um you know that certainly adds a workload to everything you know um whereas the old days when it was just 20 inputs it was just those guys and a couple guitars bass and drums and a vocal you know there was something special about that too, but, um,
2: so uh, th- these are two questions, um, from some of our listeners here. This is at PJ, uh, Obras. Did I say that right? Chase?
0: Uh, I think it's PJ, Bob Ross, Bob Ross, <laughs> Obras. Nice. <laughs> nice little amp right over here.
2: Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, do you think we will ever get the 2007 tour shows?
1: I can't answer that. Uh, okay. I, I don't know why they never released that stuff. um, but that's up to, you know,
3: management and band. Um, but they are recorded. I wasn't around for that, so. Uh, oh, I, okay. Uh, you know, I do
1: not know if they got recorded. I think so, but.
2: This uh, one comes from uh, Patrick Bogle. He asks, uh, when did you start thinking that you were recording shows that may be released?
1: That whole thing came about. I mean, uh, Ed and Jeff specifically always wanted. Copies of the shows. And so, like I said, early on, the the cassettes I would run, those would end up in Ed's hands because they wanted to listen to what was going on and maybe be a little self critical. Um, They really wanted audience presence. So, a lot of those were just a stereo mic in the room so that they could hear their performance as well as hear the the crowd in there, you know, hear kind of a representation of what the show was like. Um, That went on to DAT. And then I still made cassettes for Ed off of that. Um, I believe he still gets copies of all the shows. Um, the multi-track thing happened. I built a little—not uh, little, but a uh, r- remote recording. Oops, sorry. Remote recording. Um, you think I know better? Yeah, remote recording uh, rack for Jeff Ayman, and it had 16 tracks of ADAT, which was a VHS tape format at the time. And he asked me if there was any way that I could capture the live shows on the multi-track. And I talked with uh my system tech, uh, well, PA owner, Dave Levine, Dave Ratt, um, brilliant man. And I was like, well, here's an easy way to grab it and still have, you know, unique, not unique, but uh individual control over every track. And only 16 tracks meant I had to kind of sum some things. And, you know, the tapes were only a certain length, and so they'd run and run out. And you have to switch the tapes in the middle of the show and miss stuff. But I started uh we were in New Orleans, and the band was working at Kingsway.
3: That must have been Phytology era, I'm thinking. 94, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh,
1: uh, M- Kelly, their manager, asked if I could mix a bunch of that stuff, just go through tapes, pick out some bunch of different songs that I thought were good performances, and they were planning on using it as B-sides and some other material. And so while they were in, I went and found a really cool – Home studio had a nice neve console, had eight ads, et cetera, et cetera. I just brought my tapes in, spent a couple of days just combing through things and mixing it. Real live versions. These are just random um,
0: performances or or was it one show? No, no, it's from uh
1: however many shows we had down at that point. Wow that I had with me. Um I don't remember how deep into the tour we were, but it was certainly, you know, over a dozen shows, probably closer to twenty.
2: Do you um, have a favorite show? Brit, like one that uh, the one that stands there like, ah, oh, that that that's the one that I'm most proud of, or that's the one that I,
1: I don't think there's one, just mm-hmm. one. Okay. Um, I mean, there were so many moments, uh, soldier field, Chicago, 94 mm-hmm. was amazing. Uh, we played two nights in 98 here in Seattle at the, uh,
0: Oh, the football field right the next to the Memorial,
1: the Memorial yeah. stadium. And we were the first show allowed back after a black Sabbath show there that, <laughs> <laughs> nature, no one got to play there for a
3: while. Um, and uh, just volume. And uh, uh, there were two nights, and I think
1: the first night was really hot and muggy in there, and it never cleared up for me. But for some reason, the second night, there was a little light breeze. It didn't get as hot in the stadium. and the band really played well, just a really fun night. but there's a, I't know, probably a
0: dozen of those I could name. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, some of these 94 shows and I didn't have this plan, but I just thought of it like the Orpheum show. That's, that's the crew deciding what to play. So what, what was your input on the famous Orpheum set list? Well,
1: Ed had been telling me that at some point he was going to hand me a sheet of paper to create the set list. Oh. And that night while I'm eating dinner, he comes up and sets a blank piece of paper and a Sharpie down, smiles and walks out the door. <laughs> fortunately i was sitting there with the rest of the crew because you know i don't know the tunings off the top of my head i mean there's so many things you got to think about right yeah. you don't want to have to have guitar changes every single song <laughs> and that kind of thing so we started working on it and uh you know i named the half a dozen songs i really wanted to see on there um but between us myself jimmy uh tim
3: quinlan scully who passed on mm, a few yeah, uh, yeah. Um, who else? George, uh, oh, yeah,, George Webb, of course, of course. Um, he was my roommate back in that era. Um,
1: probably uh Eric Johnson, our tour manager, was around, and Keith Wismar, a lighting person who also has passed on. Kevin Schuss. Time. uh Kevin wasn't touring with us at that time, no. Oh. Um, he came out on the f- uh, he and I drove the equipment truck, Keith and Eric in the van from Seattle to Boston for that first tour I did with them. Wow. <laughs> That's a long days. drive in a bus.
3: Yeah.
1: <sighs> we Three days, we drove straight across the country uh, and had the night off and started work the next day. Um, and I think Kevin went home
0: right after that.
2: You, um, you remember one or two songs that you really wanted on there?
0: Yeah. Well, well I'm curious as to what you really wanted. Boy, I'd have to see that.
1: I, you know, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, uh, if I saw the uh, track listing, I could probably go, oh, yeah, that was one, that was one, but it's been a minute.
0: I remember the uh, one that always jumped out to me that I was so happy to see on there was um, was Alone, Hard to Imagine, Rats.
1: Alone would have been me because I, uh, I went and saw those guys
3: at, oh, let's, it's now uh, Graceland. It was uh, totally spacing the
1: name of the venue. It's where Soundgarden did their uh, performance for singles as well. Off-ramp, the off-ramp. Oh, yeah. So Jeff was a Fleetfoot messenger, bicycle messenger in Seattle at that point. And he'd come <laughs> Really? By, yeah, and he'd made deliveries <laughs> to, the, to the studio when I was working there. Back then, it was Steve Lawson Productions. Uh, and I'd see him come in sometimes. We'd visit for a minute. and He mentioned to me that they were playing – uh the off-ramp uh whenever friday saturday night and i should come check it out I'm like yeah sure i went and, uh you know they were nervous um most of them the guys were just turned into their amps jeff was the only one that was kind of engaging the audience uh you know it was brand new and they hadn't opened up yet right um just getting comfortable together comfortable as a, a, as individuals and as a band but might have been encore, but right toward the end of the show, uh, they went into a And I just snapped towards stage and went, wow. I mean, and all of a sudden, there's all this energy coming off that stage, and the guys were actually engaging with the audience. And it was a pretty cool moment. Um, so that song has always had a special place in my heart. I'm sure I asked for that one.
0: Uh, um, let's skip ahead a touch here. Um, can you give me kind of a mini timeline of how you approached your quote-unquote, broadcast style of mixing for those early official bootlegs? Like, I've read something about you being kind of the front of house and an assistant in a truck. Like, how long did this process take?
1: Well, the very beginning was, uh, this was always um, their manager, Kelly Curtis's uh, ex-manager now, but his his vision, he kept asking me if there was any way we could mix these shows and get them out in front of the bootleggers because they were being so heavily bootlegged. Mm. And back
0: then, what, what year was that?
1: Oh, yeah. right at the gate. I mean, you know, you're talking into ninety-one, ninety-two, and he.
0: Oh, wow. Talking. Okay. Yeah,
1: and uh, he. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know how well, that all works, maybe, but um, back then, anyway, somebody with a crappy pocket mic. Could sell their recording to a label in Italy where there is no copyright laws. Yeah, yeah, that's where
2: most of those those old Jason. I talked about this with these old bootlegs that we have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The song titles are not even accurate. But
1: (laughs) they'd master it, sort of, you know, get it printed to disc, and bring it back into the U.S. as a you know imported box set, forty bucks or something like that, right? uh And, And you know. Not fair. One, the band doesn't see anything from that, the same material. But two, it was a you know
0: crappy recording. Just not. Every now and again, you find one that wasn't horrible. But um, real quick, hold on. Before you continue this, I have a quick question. How do people get the soundboard recordings if they're not you? Because there are a handful before the official bootlegs came out that are not vault releases that we just happen to have soundboard. How does when, that happen?
1: When we were playing uh, shows, where somebody brought in. Augmented production, and/or we're doing a festival or something where we're playing on someone else's PA. They ah, could sneak that in somewhere without us knowing it, without mm-hmm. me knowing. It. it wouldn't be right off the console, but there's a a lot of places they can pick the stereo mix from because it's sent all the way back up on the stage to right. get to the amps, then, right? So yeah. anywhere along the line they could grab them. And I have heard a couple for sure, but
0: yeah.
1: Um,
3: so but, they wanted uh, to
0: do this early, early on, and obviously the band was like promoting. Fans trading tapes for free. Oh yeah, but Always. but the idea of making a business and getting ahead of these um bootleggers, the naughty ones, right. was very early. <laughs> so eventually, how how do you get to like, oh shit, I can do this? And you guys decide, hey, 2002, or we can do this.
1: I built my first home studio. it was in the basement of our house, uh, Pro Tools based. Early early on, your wife my- must have loved this. Oh God,
3: yeah. well, she's so
1: happy, happy building that. <laughs> Um you can imagine, yay, it's Pearl James snare drum again <laughs> for 10 hours. Um,
3: <laughs> but uh patient lady. Um but uh anyway, I was uh talking with Kelly about my studio and he he stops, he looks at me and goes, So can we do the bootlegs now?
1: <laughs> and I thought about it and I went, you know what? We might be able to make this work. Um we were doing a couple of up shows one at the Mount Baker theater that I've since remixed and it was a vault
3: show, I think. Um, is it Bellingham? Yeah. 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 Another one up, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, I think it
1: was a radio promo or something. I don't remember both smaller venues for that era. And, uh, I brought it home and John Burton was working with me back then. I uh, brought him out to help recreate he wasn't working for the band yet. Um, he, he recorded the shows for me so he made sure we caught it all and um, took notes as it was going. And He joined me at the house. I mixed about Mount Baker Theater one after already promising that we could do all of the European tour that was coming up in two weeks that I had off after that tour. And it took me three days to mix the Mount Baker show. And I thought, uh-oh. Like, what did oh, I shit. get
2: myself I, into?
1: Yeah. And so we're in rehearsals and Kelly says, uh, so we're still set for that, right? I was like, oh, right, about that. <laughs> I, I ran into a bit of a, and he's, he just looked me in the eye and said, you said you could do it. And I thought, well, oh, shit, okay. So during the tour, we, you know, got it. I think I was still recording everything. Uh, individual channels off off the desk and uh john and i got back to the house and said the only way this works is uh we're going you're going to live at my house for the next two weeks and we're going to go after this um and it wasn't you didn't have digital files right so you had to run tape real time onto the hard drives mix a show and then you had to run it real time back off onto dat masters Uh, it took a long time to get a show So John would set two I had enough hard drive space back then. You know, I think the biggest drives were nine gig at the time or something.
2: Um, now we're working with terabytes. (laughs) Right,
1: yeah, I've got, you know, eight terabyte hard drives, like eight of them. Um, But yeah, uh, he'd set it all up for me. I'd come in, mix the two shows, get the first one bouncing, wake him up (laughs) eventually. And then he'd come in and, you know, get those ready get the next two ready and we just kept going around the clock like this for two weeks i think we got done two days ahead of time but that's how the very first bootlegs were done um a little painful but we got it done uh i I think the rest of that year was all still just done in the basement
3: and then we came up the idea of trying to turn it around even quicker and we built the uh took my studio and
1: built it into the front lounge of a tour bus. So John was in there recording the shows. This was 2003, I think, when we started this. Um, and so after the show, I would grabbed a shower. I you know, had my stuff torn down. I'd go back and work in the bus for a little while. And if we were doing a show the next day, I'd get up and work throughout the morning until it was time for me to go deal with pa and stuff uh days off i'd be working in a parking lot by the hotel that kind of thing um
3: we also had video editing equipment on there and the idea was uh steve steve gordon
1: and liz burns were working on that stuff and i'd choose one song from each show that i thought was a standout they would cut the video to that, but the whole, that was the crew
3: running around with handheld cameras. Mm-hmm. That, were doing that, And that's actually where the idea behind. Uh, um, Touring Band? Yeah, Touring Band 2000 came out. Kelly came to me and said, hey, can we make a DVD? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Let
1: me look into it. And bought the book DVD Demystified and read it. Um, daunting, but at the end of it, I kind of thought about it. Yeah, we can, we can do this. We can make this happen.
0: Uh, so that's we, just on the fly you guys are coming up coming with that up, uh, coming up with these ideas like can we do this Sh- i think so sure yeah that yeah. it was funny because we're
1: standing in front of uh all the big at epic and sony and one of them looks at me and goes what makes you think you can do this i'm like because i did my research you know <laughs> at that point they were used to spending you know millions of dollars on these things right yeah and we are with handheld cameras and a pro tools rig and off we go it worked worked out well.
2: It um, sure did. So that oh, go ahead Brett. Continue oh, please. I
1: don't actually want me to keep walking down this but we stop me whenever you want to. Um that that
3: went on for just that tour. Next time we went out I had built we were one oh the band wanted to try to put the shows out same day. Um that had
1: all sorts of hurdles we had to overcome uh built basically a broadcast again some of my gear but a lot of uh live gear at that point went into a uh um, 20-foot sea container and made it really comfortable and air conditioning kind of a room inside a room uh and that was trucked from venue to venue and uh I was mixing both the broadcast mix and sending live stems back to front of house where another engineer was kind of reshaping it for the PA in there. So it was still technically my mix, but he was overseeing it for the room Mm. and that didn't work as well as me being in the room,
3: but it sounds costly too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, That was the right actor. Yeah, it was.
2: And it's fun. We, we've talked a lot about how those O3 those boots, especially in Japan, are just, they sound magical.
1: Uh, outside, we didn't have the seat container, but we were building, we took everything in, in cases and we were building it into, uh, you know, dressing rooms or wherever we could they could find to shove us. that was close enough to the stage for us to run a snake, um, you know, the uh, main audio trunk of multi-track stuff from the stage out to us. Um, but that was it was a lot of fun and then we had to get the show uploaded we were working with a company called whamnet that was uh oh not to get into too much but they had connectivity all over the world where um you know if you uploaded it to one footprint it would cover that certain region and so you Mm. had that all over the place and then we tied their network into the
2: folks that have mastered it but maybe maybe this is obvious but uh, do you have any say on which mics were used in front of guitar cabs and on the drum kits uh
1: when i was the front of house guy yeah, <laughs> yeah all, all the way but uh when greg came in and took over uh no no it's uh that's his call right, between he and the band at that point um if i wanted to augment Something, uh, you know, uh, certainly audience mics for my call um, between John Burton and I. Uh, John's still out there setting all that up and recording all the shows for him. Uh, and if I thought, well, geez, I really would like a different mic on a bass cab or something like that, John would wire that up for me. but uh,
0: Jimmy Shove talked about how uh, David Brazis would often change snares depending on the venue for you know the band to be able to hear him and then maybe it's a bigger venue it's it's maybe a deeper snare kind of thing
3: does the venue change the mic ever? No no um, reason being is once you find something that's working you're comfortable with it you usually have backups for
1: it uh every mic has a unique it's a sound to it um color uh, and and volume gain structure. So if you had, we're trying to change mics out from show to show, um, you're going to have to retool monitors, you're going to have to retool front of house, uh, front of house quicker and easier to monitor oh geez, monitors that, uh, uh, you know, the bands listening to, um, now it, consistency is really important. So we kind of find it, uh, something that's working across the board. And then we stick to it so that it makes the kind of nuts and bolts of the day a lot easier. Smooth,
0: so like if you like a fifty-seven, you're gonna keep the fifty-seven on that cab. Yeah, got it. Okay. If
1: it's not working, we'll change it out for something sure. else. But if then sure. work absolutely stick
2: with uh, it. A question from one of our listeners here, Javier on Instagram. He asks it: Do you record straight from the amps, and are there any amps in the back for recording? I think it means like direct input.
3: Okay. Um, the band is
1: using some speaker simulators now. Um. I'm not a fan of it. I don't use it when I'm doing my thing. It's something Greg likes happen- having and I think is a nice backup in case the amps go down for any reason. You still got something that works. Um, like a, like a we, Kemper? Is that what you mean? Like a modeler? Yeah. yeah.
0: Not a modeler so much. Uh, it's a, uh, so you're still oh, like concerned. a, um, what are those thousand dollar things? Those little, those little boxes.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. I can't think of what it's called, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Universal that. audio ones.
3: Uh, there's,
1: they have one, I don't remember what these guys are using. Um, and to tell you the truth, I might even be wrong. That it's not just a speaker simulator it may very well be a uh, amp modeler as well.
0: I don't, well, know. Mike had, um, for the first time in the last year's tour, he wasn't using, he had, we had one of those digital modeler fenders, those new ones. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Which but was he,
1: strange. But he also had two other amps up there. with. Yeah. It,
3: so yeah, yeah.
1: He still had, um, and there was a point where he would moved away from Marshall when I was out there, but I had, uh, when Jeff Ausley was still working with him, I had him still set the Plexi up and drive a speaker in an isolated cabinet so that I could blend that in a little bit to the sound he had on stage. It also gave me something that, was not being affected by the pedal board because uh, Mike sometimes will have a great time with a solo and turn everything up to 10 on his pedal board
0: and then forget to turn it off. <laughs> 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 that sounds you like know? a Mike thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, chaos and brilliance, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and maybe the, the next song he starts and his riffs going, <laughs>
0: So, That's does good. someone have to run out there and, and like tweak it for him, or do you fix it? I think of- he usually figures it out and
1: starts coming
0: okay. yeah. Oh, because of his inner, because of his monitors? Yeah, yeah, he can hear it. He bet.
1: I got you. But okay. The, the, the amps barking at him are doing the same thing. So
2: nice. At Patrick Bogle on X or. or formerly known as twitter <laughs> he wants to know uh, those 2005 mixes that were released as lossless audio a few years ago on nugs.net that those sound the best to him since the 2000 north america legs He wanted to know what was happening with these years that made the sound so natural and full
3: that was oh five i think we were in the uh well the u.s part of that i
1: was in the uh C container. And so those were live mixes, broadcast style live mixes. I was at the venue with the band. Um, But only for the US part. After that, we started um, bringing them. I just, that's when John started shipping the drives to me here.
2: Um, They just decided, Brett, at that time, it was just the the setup was too costly.
1: Yeah. There wasn't any more or less interest for the bootlegs being put out. More expeditiously, mm. um, people didn't to, to be that much more excited to have them night of or you know that close to time.
0: College um, Jason was super stoked to like refresh every day during that <laughs> Australian leg of two thousand three. Be like, oh, new bootleg is out. So <laughs> I was still excited, but I can understand how maybe that wasn't uh, maybe the novelty wore off a little bit.
1: Yeah, I, and you know, it was quite a bit more expense to have. Myself, two crew, uh, mm. you know, a bus, a truck, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it really wasn't offsetting that. If if it had been a thing where, you know, another whatever, how many number of people were super excited and it, it drove, you know, in the end, things like that, it's going to be money. They don't want to lose yeah. money.
2: Now, um, speaking of a lot of people, Brett, something had to go wrong. At some point in time, all these shows, this many folks involved, couriers, big files uploading. Uh, can you think of a time where just you thought, oh man, <laughs> this may not happen?
1: <laughs> we were working uh South America. I was in pretty much like mobile trailers um, with our setup in that kind of old 506 range. And we were running on generators. Uh, I had a big bank of ups's um to back everything up and at one point i hear this chirping going on over my mix and i don't listen quietly i'm like what am i and i turn it down and i realize it's the ups's and i have my tech at the time alan bagley go look and he runs out and at that point everything went black uh generator run out of gas
0: is that Um, what a ups
1: is sorry yeah the ups's were uh uh, battery backup so i have okay. been on every backup the generators had died so my <laughs> oh, body so they' out they were out of power <laughs> right so they finally went out died uh I don't remember how we compensated for that um this was before we had uh uh multiple backups going and things like that that we do now but uh, uh um I know uh God a few years back John was recording down in South America and something was going on with his rig where it added a whole bunch of distortion to the uh, recordings and people picked up on that pretty quick. Um, I mean, it wasn't unlistenable, but there was definitely something weird going on and that that's just disheartening.
0: Um, Well, speaking of a, of a, of a weird distortion thing. Um, I I actually wasn't even going to ask this, but you kind of brought me to it. Um, Jimmy Gonzalez on Twitter asked about the 2005, Philadelphia show and I will say that I I was there. It was fabulous. And there was at the beginning of Crazy Mary a really weird squelch feedbacky thing and the band stopped and Ed said he was freaked out and didn't want to restart it and Stone was the hero and said let's carry on. Do you have any idea what the hell happened there? Do you remember that?
1: Monitor feedback something got away on stage. That's all?
3: That's all That's it was? It. Yeah.
1: But <laughs> it could have been, you know, it also could have been and, uh I don't remember specifically but could be that or a thing that happens a lot is if you leave two guitar packs on at the same time, the wireless packs,
3: oh.
1: it'll, it'll just blow up through the uh, amplifier. And that might have been what went on. And if you that squelchy thing, that's exactly what that was. Um, one pack was still left on, they turned the other one on that same channel, both of them hit that amp and just
0: went crazy. That feel, I mean, yeah, you're going from song to song generally, they're, they're going to change. Yeah, that could have been a stone thing because he obviously went to an acoustic and he would have been on a electric Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Fun yeah. little there there you go, Jim. Yeah. Your 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 query has been he's probably I been mean, waiting 18 years for this answer.
1: The fact that a live show works ever, if you think about the fact that one wire somewhere, just like a car, can bring can kick the wheels off, right? The whole and where thing. the hell is it? Right. Right. I mean, you've got some very sharp people trying to keep on top of that stuff every day. But I mean, just law of averages, how is it that that thing is put up and works every single day? It's pretty mind boggling.
2: Right when discussing uh, the process for choosing the performances for Live on 10 Legs, you said that the band gave you a set list and that uh, you'd split up every performance of each song amongst a group of people. Uh, Do you recall who was in that group and maybe a little bit more about the process of narrowing down those best cuts?
1: uh it was myself john burton uh tim bearman head of 10 club and i think christian fresco who was uh the head of
3: uh, record label at that point i think that was all of us ultimately um i would review everyone's choices as well just to make sure that i agreed uh with what was
1: going on because sometimes my ears would pick up something that a non engineer non mixer type won't um but it it really that's it a I mean live on two legs, the first one I went through forty shows myself,
3: oh my I, God,
1: and wrote a binder worth of notes. To call you still that. have that binder? It's probably with the uh,
2: masters and the tape fault, I bet. oh wow. And, and they gave you the set list for that one as well, and you now, just had I mean, to.
1: I just made it up. Uh, I just chose all the set in front of Stone was principal on that one. So those guys will split things up when it comes to projects like that, and it's usually Stone, Jeff, or Ed that are driving the bus. Um, Stone and I worked on that one together mostly. Uh, not to say the other guys weren't in and out, but he was there every day,
3: um, and he helped shed the set list, but it was predicated upon my song choices
0: that all were working really well. The, that I did not know that, that you kind of, did you choose a set with the, like, the order track listing as well? Or did Stone say, I want to lead off. For sure. Okay. Uh, it was just uh, the individual performances that I've chosen. The, the quirky thing about live on two legs is one song is, Two performances, even flow. Why? The uh, main body
1: was the grooviest, best feeling, and it didn't have as strong a solo. Mm. And Stone said, "Looked at my notes. Went, this one says great solo. Solo, can you put them together?" And I'm
2: <laughs> you, just, Frankensteined like, it from there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, studio, you do that all the time, right? You might have half a dozen. Hell, I've done projects where there was 12 to 14 takes, and you'd listen through each section, each take, tape and razor blade it and put it together and get pieces stuck all over the wall with <laughs> notes on them, and, um,
3: and we didn't do that. But I was, I was still ADAT, and I was copying all of the um, performances off to analog 24-track to help warm them up from the,
1: the ADAT version. Uh, the tape tape just does a marvelous thing with audio. And the early digital formats weren't great. Um, so that helped warm it up a bit. And then basically I just dumped the back half of that second version of even flow on the tape and just cut them together. Did it did it feel a little, I mean if you Because I mean, these are people who are just tweezing. they're listening in headphones, and they're
0: going but you wouldn't even know. I that. mean, I didn't even realize until somebody pointed it out to me, and then I went and, like, look well, on Wikipedia," and I go, "Oh, it does say that there. It was like Pittsburgh and something else I forget. Um, you don't hear I mean, to your to your credit, you don't hear that um, per se. Some, uh, someone knew and wrote it down on the internet and of course the internet's true so i had to ask
1: i'm (laughs) betting that people are sitting there with bootlegs or or performance tapes listening up against each other to find those i mean i I really believe that i I, i've got a pretty damn good ear for that band and for that kind of thing and i would pick that out so
0: i mean the the mix you don't you don't see that mix you don't feel it the only thing you could think of is i remember i had i randomly had on Whatever the whatever the first half of that song is from whatever the show is, I had it, that show on randomly as a, just in my background, and I heard the opening of of Evenflow, and I go, "Oh shit, this is from Live on Two Legs." And then I got to the soul, and I go, it "Doesn't sound the same to my memory." And then someone pointed it out to me, and I go, "Oh shit, there's trickery afoot." <laughs>
1: and
3: well, I, did. The
0: idea, I mean, you wanted
1: the most exciting version of that for the record, you could right? Yeah. Does that yeah. feel like
0: a lie though to you
3: at all?
1: No. I mean, you know, <laughs> no. most of the live records you grew up with were completely overdubbed in the studio and we didn't do that I guarantee vocals replaced everything back when they didn't have much audience presence or much room presence
0: get away with that Guess well, a hold live. on though because you you mentioned in Live on 10 Legs that you did add in some drum stuff for Matt for example like what, what would you add in to like because obviously the bootleg stuff and the live album official stuff is different different animals so like
1: Uh, you're, you're, I'm just adding like, you know, maybe a studio sample of Matt's drums in underneath it. It's more consistent. Mm. It follows dynamically and there's a program we can use. It'll just throw it in there, time align it to, let's say it's a kick drum. So it follows Matt's kick drum. It also follows the volume of Matt's kick drum. And just, you know, having that underneath the live one, uh, adds consistency, um, maybe a stronger tonality in some range I'm looking for rather than sitting there just twisting EQ to try to find it. It's real easy these days just to do that kind of thing. Mm. So that's what I was talking about there. Okay.
2: We got a segment on the show, Brett, Uh, we call it live cut of the week and uh, we do something similar where we, we pick our favorite performance of a song. However, uh, we do have these, I should say, I have these uh, these self-imposed guardrails uh, where it has to be from the album tour cycle. Of its origin so for example best version of uh you know hail hail needs to come from 1996 right i'm not pulling some from 2010 uh so obviously uh for rarely played songs uh, or songs that are debuting much later in in the cycle those are going to be exceptions considering your history with the band in the live arena uh, you've literally heard just about every live cut the band has ever done, usually multiple times. By chance, do you have your favorite live cut of every song as well? Like, did you do what I did? Like, have you written them down or your your all time, you know, eight man cuts or whatever?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've probably heard alive a thousand times or both, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I recorded it for the video, even. Um, yeah, it's that would be daunting. Uh, I, I still remember. Eras. I think one of the, my favorite era of that band was 1998 when when uh, Matt Cameron joined us um interesting it, it, everybody was hitting on all cylinders having so much fun um, Mike was in a
3: special spot was just really really focused and tasty um you know just a really good vibe amongst all of band and crew so that was um, that was you think the best tour 98 uh, during the time I was with him. Yeah. It's always front of house. Yeah. You go back to, uh, uh, you know, Versus era and crazy great energy. Dave was uh, a different drummer than all the rest, for sure. Um,
1: but, you know, meaning each guy's been unique with the band and it has shaped the band's sound and energy and approach. Um, plus, you know, they blew up, there was all that crazy huge wave and energy going on. So, you
3: know, I'd have to say the Versus tour was an amazing thing to be a part of. I never thought I'd, you know, ever
1: see that kind of success out of the band I was working for or what I got to enjoy going into that. But um,
2: You know, Live on 10 Legs was about 13 years ago, right, Brett? So, uh do you think there's a third chapter in this series or what
0: you're working on uh, Brett? <laughs> what am
1: i working on
2: yeah.
0: no right now
3: um the uh you know it would surprise me if they do something somewhere along the line um they haven't released what have they released since then uh i mean the the uh the dvd that
0: the, the two for a show at chicago i guess you could consider that a and that's a that's an official live album per se. Yeah, yeah. there was because there, there was like a comp CD that went along with that. I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, thirteen years is a long time in between official live albums. I, I I maybe thought that you had been like tasked. Hey, by the way, when this little run is over, maybe can you start pulling some stuff? No. No. Nope.
2: Nope. Okay. No. Nope. Uh- Let's do. Uh- Let's do a, a lightning round here. Yeah, some, well, some social media lightning round from from our listeners here, You've, Brett. You can you can elaborate as much as you wish, obviously, on any of these questions, but you can also feel free to to can answer them in just a line or two. Uh, this is from Matt Behan on Patreon, he says, "What hidden gems do you know of that Pearl Jam might release someday, and uh, any more earlier light bootlegs in in the future?" Ninety. Uh, 90- what does this mean here? I guess pre
0: ninety eight.
2: Pre ninety eight. Thank you. And any gems you know the Pearl Jam might release one day or that, that you suspect vault or you'd like stuff. to see them release as a vault series?
3: Uh, they
1: had me mix, pick and mix 20 shows like
3: in 2010 um, as that that became their uh, what they call it their, anyway their individual show releases um, and they put out six or eight of those so there's still quite a bit in that pile
0: so these are these are shows that are pre-2000 or pre-98 that they said can you we love we love these shows they're, not go all ahead pre, and- they're
1: just all things that weren't released at all so okay it could have been uh a, a one-off show later on that never hit the bootleg stack or uh, certainly some things from early early on i even pulled uh a dad or two from like ninety two um, that shows sound good enough coming from the console it's kind of cool um mm, that'd be awesome <laughs> so those are those are in the pipeline whether they ever see light of day that's up to band
2: um, any shows prior to 2000 this is a, a patrick bogle question here on uh, x any shows prior to 2010 that you'd like to see released that come to mind um or prior to 2000 pardon me so a, a, anything before binaural
1: i mean we the, problem with ninety eight was that i wasn't able to get whole shows mm-hmm. Tape changes i was still mi- mixing live i mean there'd be times when i'd hit play and record get back to trying to get you know right before the show started i'd be focused on a the live performance i look back and machines didn't take off for whatever reason and i have to mess with that or you know uh bands started playing longer and longer sets so now one set of tapes isn't get to get me to encore anymore, and I'm having to do tape changes in the middle of it. So, um, they would have to, you know, put it out and put disclaimers that say, you know, there's these three or four songs aren't on here because of the dot.
2: That the that is a great segue, Brett, to a question that I've been dying to ask. You. Here we go. It's the the one kernel. This the the one question. I Jason and I have been talking about this for for years. years. The no code sessions, no, no code tours. We do not have enough shows. We've got like uh, Melbourne. What else do we have, Jason? We have, uh, I mean, there's Berlin
0: broadcasts, but like, there's got to be something. No, like, can we get Randall's Island for Christ's sake? Could we get Charlotte? I mean, oh my there's God. There's
2: so many great shows from the no code tour. And for whatever reason, there, there's no vault release from, from then. And the, we, there's just not a lot of, what, what, what is your response to that? Uh, Are yeah. we ever going to see these? What do you think? <laughs>
1: Uh, there are recordings i don't know that there's an entire show to any of that tour because oh. of the formats right um there's also problems with you bring up randall's island well in new york um if you wanted to record a show it might is probably still this way you have to pay the piper and it's expensive to pay the Ooh. union um and i think that stems from the days when you know remote recordings a uh, tractor trailer would roll in and be a whole lot more work for the unions but they've kept the same fees for uh, rack rolling in, um,
3: and you know, band and management has to decide whether it's worth paying that. And you know, there's been times when they've paid it, and the show wasn't that great, and
1: it was Ugh, that money.
3: Right? That's a bummer. Yeah,
0: you, you gamble, and it's, it's it is it isn't Randall's Island. It's you know, insert other show here. That
2: oh yeah, uh, so. The so Although, you suspect, uh, Brett, then, that there might not be a great record, or like a great show from that No Code tour, that would befit the, the vault release? I yeah,
1: no, no, I'm sure we went through the era. My guess is uh, there's probably some really great. Performances, but not a full show.
2: Uh, we and, we need a live on no code lakes. Then is what. We- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just piece,
2: piece, a, piece it idea. together. Brett, pitch Pitch about that. That might not be a bad idea. We'll um, take I mean, associate gotta,
0: producer credits on that. You can lead, yeah,
1: the, lead, right, lead the project. Right. <laughs> I I know that exists, but I you know I know uh first time we played. I think it was the first
3: time. Now, anyway, we had a back to back at Madison Square Garden. And uh, the house didn't know that we
1: were recording the first night. When somebody saw that I was, went to management and said, hey, you have to pay for that. And they decided not to pay for the second night. The second night was a jam.
0: Oh, this is 98 breath show. Yeah. Oh, you fuckers.
2: <laughs> ah,
3: that's
0: yeah. the breath. I mean, that, that's, that's.
2: You meaning the venue, not you and the band. <laughs> yeah, not, not,
0: not you, Brad. The, the 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 fuckers uh, in New York. <laughs> oh man, what a what a bu- I You're mean, gonna hate us. Um someone unearthed like the best possible audience recording you could probably get like I want to say a year and a half ago. So we've got that, but it isn't a Brett approved, you know, soundboard beautiful mix that we should be getting.
2: Now, now we know why we don't have that though. Yeah, it wasn't recorded. Yeah, that happened
1: a
3: few times. Yeah, I think that same tour uh of in, in um Montreal. Uh the arena up there and the band just I
1: forget what they were asking. They said, "Nah, we're not going to pay it."
0: And Do you it recall incredible. if the um, if the, the 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 tax man in Hartford, Connecticut, on that '98 tour was as bad as New York? Because that was my first show, and if I could get somehow a copy of that bad boy, that would be amazing.
1: I don't think Hartford has that same issue, so it's probably a, oh, okay. been a part of a the show there. All right, yeah. there's, there's Radke.
2: Radkey <laughs> from Instagram had some questions about the Jack era and you know w- whether or not any of that was worthy that. of that. I yeah. think I think that was addressed. So we're gonna go with uh at State of Amorica oh, on Twitter are uh, our are wonderful friends. Um they are they are not a Pearl Jam podcast, though. Black Crows podcast. or a Black Crows podcast. Uh okay, and an cool. and, and absolutely Chef's Kiss stellar one at that. And uh,
1: uh, I have something to talk about. That's great.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah other uh, so yeah, they are outstanding so they ask has um have, have you ever had to tell a band member that they sounded bad
3: <laughs> yes Ooh. Oh. and you are I you ready not, to say I'll,
1: who so yeah, I mean, maybe because i was asked I, I don't think i would ever go in there and go what was wrong with you tonight <laughs> um, i mean everybody has bad nights and those guys are such consummate professionals you wouldn't usually know um Maybe someone's sick and struggling. Mm. That's what has happened, um but I think at a time or two throughout my my uh, friend house time with them, I was actually asked how it went, and uh you know, an interesting perspective. There's nights where the band thought they were just not on at all, but the audience was so into it, and I don't know that maybe that wasn't getting up on stage, and maybe they weren't as tight as they can be. But my perspective is always from the audience because I'm out there and I've been able to look at them on the other side and just say, you know, people were into it tonight, so whatever you were
0: doing was working. It's amazing to think that if you think you're at a five and the audience thinks you're at a ten, that's a pretty great, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty great thing.
3: Yeah, for sure. All
0: right, um, Chill Mickelson on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if you actually were on this tour, but, uh, assuming that you were. Any not on it but recorded these and, and mixed these. Any idea if any of the 2016 Temple of the
3: Dog stuff was recorded and available? Um, I'm sure it was recorded. Uh, was it was yeah. a, that wasn't you though? No, I was okay. not. Okay, that, so um, I'm, I'm sure those guys would have recorded that. I, I I can't verify
1: that right now, but just knowing the the entities involved that mm. I'm betting that there were recordings of it. And I'm betting those, those shows too.
2: Brad, uh, Brad Arendale on uh, Facebook and Matt Behan on Facebook or Instagram, pardon me, wanted to know how do you feel about the number of shows that have been recorded, but not released 2007 tour, 2013 Wrigley vote for change tour, Pearl Jam 20. Do you have any position on any of that or.
1: So Wondering about what I feel about the stuff that hasn't been released. Yes, yeah. Uh, again, that that comes down to what the band wants and doesn't want. There's if something's not out there, it's because somebody wasn't feeling good about it for whatever reason. Got it. There's like I said, there's some gems from the past, but there's also a thing in the band where they're kind of tired of looking back all the time. They want to look forward, um, and I get that too. Mm. So. Okay. I think what you're looking at is, you know, uh, sometimes it's uh, all the members, sometimes just an individual just says, nah, I don't want that That's
0: interesting. Can't. Kyle Meredith from um, the NPR radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, just recently spoke to Jeff Ament about, um, I think, Def Charlie and some new Pearl Jam stuff and and bugged him, as he did bug stone, actually, a few weeks prior about this whole thing like is there extra no code era stuff yield box set like live things we haven't heard demos and like i think it's why we always bring it up and obviously you can't you're not in charge of that but like i'm curious if like you have any kind of personal attachment to like oh my god that show was amazing i can't believe they didn't i, I how would because you're you gotta be a fan you could listen to these things for years Absolutely. there's gotta be some shows you're like oh my god i wish people could hear what i've heard um
1: I don't know if it was ever released. I might have mixed it. Constitution Hall for the very first time with Jack playing drums. It was his first night. Uh, Neil Young played with us there. It was a, uh, I think it was a vote for change. Uh, yeah.
3: Glorious. Voters for Choice, 95, right? Voters for Choice. Yeah. Uh, um, that was it. Um, the, uh, that show was amazing. And Jack, I wasn't sure how, his style was going to fit the band, but it
1: was just so groovy and uh, a great, great night. And if that doesn't come out, that should. That was a great show.
2: Well, Brett, um, nobody affiliated with the band cares a monkey's booty, what we think, but they might listen to you. <laughs> exactly. So feel free
0: to pass. To <laughs> we pass can ban that, on. that drum all day. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you I guys can pull
1: that too. Um <laughs> uh, what else? Uh yield tour. There were really a lot of good shows on the yield. I'd have to go back and look at
3: the itinerary to let you know what I thought were standouts, but, uh, and I'm relatively sure. There's quite a bit of solid, yeah. solid
1: material from that too.
2: Well, one more question here for you, Brett. Uh, this is from static attic 80 on Patreon. He asks, or she asks, uh, is there anything standout or unique when mixing Pearl jams music compared to other bands?
1: Oh, yeah, it's Pearl Jam. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've got a band there and a singer who can make a hundred thousand people sound like they're, or feel like they're sitting around a campfire with them. And I, I've always believed that's most of the magic, right? On top of the great music and musicianship and everything else. But it's just that, that energy that they've harnessed. Uh, and again, what, touching to my earlier point where even if they felt like they weren't having a great night, they're still putting that energy out there. And it yeah. still encapsulates the audience and, and becomes this two-way street. And, uh, you know, that's a rare thing with bands. I think um, a lot of bands feel that level of energy only a, p- a smaller percentage of the time during their their uh, you know tour cycles. And these guys generated every single night um, to that degree. And I'm not trying to cut down any other bands. There's great bands out there, great shows. I've seen some amazing shows. Um, but very few, I think that are so consistent in that audience connection.
2: Right. We cannot thank you enough for the time that you gave us this evening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I can't begin to tell you how many times I saw your name written on binder notes on the, uh, 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 so many Boots albums. It's, it's a truly, truly uh, wonderful. And just we're honored truly to have had the opportunity to chat with you and, to, not just to put a face to a name because we've, we've looked you up in the past, but to have the opportunity to actually chat with you and, and just kind of hear that, that amazing perspective. And, and just, uh, I want to thank you obviously for your contribution to, to the legacy of the band. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but uh, I think you, you have played a very special part in the impact that the band has had within the, the, the fan base, within the community. And, uh, uh, you deserve a, a tip of the cap for, for those contributions.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And no, no one ever has done that before. So thank you. That's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, I've been blessed, right? Uh, I kind of stumbled into that thing and it blew up and the guys are super loyal. Uh, I still very much enjoy doing what I do for them. So it's all good.
0: Well, we we look forward to this run of nine coming out in the, in the next few weeks. Um, with bated breath, I'll be you know, adding to, adding to cart. And uh, like, like Paul said, just th- when I can't be there and w- between Paul and I, we've been to like 40 shows, 50 shows, something like that. When we can't be there, you have allowed us to be as close as possible with the way that you have constructed the sound in our two ears. So thank we you. We are for indebted
2: me. to you, sir. <laughs>
1: thank you. you know, one thing I didn't mention, but every single tour I've tried to, Pick something to work on and make it cooler, at least from my perspective. And I'm not sure if that's going to be yet this year, but at some point you'll have to circle back around and go, I think we know what you were doing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, we we would love the chance to chat with you again at some point in the future, without a doubt. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it.
0: Wow. Uh, one thing I'm starting to notice, Paul, about um, everybody that we talk to who has worked with the band for a number of years, uh, in their inner circle is they're just super down to earth, good people.
2: They are. Well, I mean, I, I would expect nothing less of the band. And so it's, uh, like I said, you know, you get an opportunity to work with good people. I think this is any industry, you know, good people attracts good people and a Pearl jam or, or, you know, up classy acts and, it, it it stands to reason then that the folks that have been working with them for an extended period of time are not just there because they're talented. They're there because they're they're truly you know gems of gems of a of a person, one way or another. So,
0: well, uh, as this episode is coming out, uh, you're probably getting ready for night one in Chicago. Maybe night two in Chicago if you're on a little bit of a delay. We're in the middle of a friggin' tour, people. Get excited! Um, and we hope we, we could give you a little bit of a perspective on the boots that you're going to be listening to in a few mm-hmm. weeks' time. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. And that's it for this week. But I, mean, I say that's it, but that was a lot.
2: Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, my, my I think I enjoyed that conversation more than the algorithm did. <laughs>
0: Ooh, maybe you should feed it.
2: You should feed that algorithm by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your preferred platform of choice.
0: Oh, he's back. I'm back. We really do appreciate you listening. That is the biggest thing uh, that you could possibly do, besides, of course, feeding the algorithm, because that allows more people to see this thing
2: Which go, in turn, what is that? Which in turn allows folks like Brett to say, okay, you know, this isn't just two dudes hanging out, having a conversation. Okay, fine. It is. But But other people are listening too. you know, and the algorithm proves that. So, yeah, uh, you guys are, are the best and, uh, you know, you keep feeding the algorithm so we can keep feeding you. There you go. Um,
0: thank you again. Uh, if you are at all interested in joining Patreon, there's links everywhere. All the bios, episode description, yada, 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 and all that stuff. Um, Yeah, that's it. We will see you next week with another brand new episode. And until we do, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust.